This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, actually. I'm, uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing really, really well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm learning that I'm more resilient than I thought I was. <laughs> oh? Did, did, did you? All the, did all the crazy <laughs> stuff happening in the world. Oh, fair enough. I, th- I thought for you might have uh, caught COVID or something of that no, nature. No, no. I'm, I'm going to be the last one. I'm, I'm going to be the last one that doesn't have it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to try and not get it. How about you? I, I had it like a while ago, but now, you know, I'm fine. So, okay, but okay. who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, all right, today we have Alyssa on the 3D pod, Alyssa Ross. And this is actually really interesting. I, th- I think this is really interesting because um, she's actually from, she's a mathematician and she comes from a company called Mesh, which is a mathematical consultancy, essentially. And that company developed something called Metafold 3D, which actually doesn't use as a mesh. <laughs> or uh, essentially, it's a Metafold 3D is a couple of things. And one way is, well, we all know that lattices and TPMS lattices and all these things, all these really complicated structures are very exciting, right? Um, at the same time, they, they pose a lot of problems from mesh-based and also nerves-based, just general uh, traditional CAD. Right? Your, your programs will cr- crash very quickly if you try to have a really complex mesh, stru- mesh structure. And they've basically figured out a way uh, with, with Metafold 3D to represent this data without uh, it uh, crashing your computer, essentially. And, which I think is really interesting, you could go to them and with a particular goal for a mesh, like uh, you want it to compress a certain way, you want to do a certain thing, have a certain behavior, and they could come up with a mesh for you. And that's interesting. And then the other thing is that they also have worked together. Well, they're, they're, they're looking to put a machine like a, uh, on the market. And they've decided to, to go the SLA DLP route uh, with that or have a VAT polymerization machine. So I thought that was really interesting. It's a very different kind of startup on a lot of different, uh, you know, first off, it's a math-based startup, not like a polymer science or not a mechanical engineering or a software-based. And then also it's a, you know, spit out. And then also it's this thing where it's like, you know, it's a bit of proprietary technology that's also now like a hardware, software, all sorts of things in between. So I thought it was a generally really, really interesting company called the Metafold 3D. So yeah, welcome. Uh, yeah, welcome to, to the show, Listen. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, so first off, I mean, well, most people have an idea that mathematics is kind of like, you know, something people do in college and nice and, uh, <laughs> you know, you have and to the get basis through it. Of like most of our technology, yeah, and, exactly. you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, I have been working this field for, for like, what is it? Well, a bunch of years now. And I had to, well, once I had to calculate the volume of a cylinder and that was very difficult. I had to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the only time I've actually used math outside like Excel. But so you guys are kind of like as as the mesh consultants is kind of like an implied mathematics consultancy. So first explain that because I think that's really exciting. Yeah, and I I definitely went all the way with math. Um, okay, okay. So I, I took that really far. But um, mm-hmm. so yes, mesh consultants is a geometric consultancy. Um, and it was started by my business partner, Daniel Hamilton, in, I guess, a decade ago, in 2012. Um, and his big interest was translating new research in mathematics, and actually old research as well, into industrial contexts, primarily in the, um, the setting of architecture. So at the time, there were a lot of uh, these kind of glass and, glass and steel curvilinear facades going up. 
and uh, there was a lot of need for geometric uh, help, basically, because this turns up a whole bunch of really thorny problems. And so he started this consultancy to address some of those challenges really in architecture and engineering. But then he soon found that, you know, the the set of geometric concerns that are relevant for those settings apply very much more, more broadly. So um, I joined him, you know, a few years after he started. And since then, we've been working together in a, a huge range of industries. Certainly, architecture and construction remain a, a key application area. But we also had a long project in uh, predictive geology, which was super interesting. We've worked with other scientists. We've worked with artists on some really amazing projects. And then more recently, we got involved in uh, 3D printing and in a, a metamaterials project. Well, I think I think maybe we should go through to get some 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 definitions out of the way. <laughs> sure. Uh, before we get confused, because everybody uses a lot of stuff uh, together. So first off, like metamaterial. What's a metamaterial? Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you my favorite definition of metamaterial, actually, which is a little cool, bit cool. unusual. I'll settle um, for your least favorite, but good. <laughs> okay. Um, so we start with a piece of paper. And I think we can all know what a piece of paper is like. It's floppy. It has a certain material property to it. And then using your uh, imagination, insert an accordion fold. So just fold this paper so it has, it's like a, an accordion. And then all of a sudden, you have something that you can stand up on your on your desktop. It, you've given it a corrugation, you've given it structure. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you've taken something, a piece of paper, and you've changed the geometry of that paper. You've given it a different geometry, and suddenly you have a different material behavior. So that's kind of the fundamental idea that underlies all of uh, metamaterials. But when people talk about metamaterials in the context of 3D printing, they usually mean lattice geometry or some kind of microstructure that mm -hmm. you you engineer, you, you kind of fiddle with, you do some math, you do some engineering on this microstructure. And then when you aggregate enough unit cells, like enough, um, a, a large enough number of these cells, mm -hmm. and you put them all together, you end up with this macro behavior that's kind of more than the, the sum of the parts. Does that so make sense? Can, yeah, totally, totally. I think, so we can make, like, let's give a really stupid example. We could make a thing with a lot of boxes in it or let's, a lot of uh, cavities in it, let's say, that would be more squishy than, than the whole. Or would maybe even harden if you squish it uh, harder or something like that. Or have a different behavior than the thing would have by itself, right? Or something like that. Yes, exactly. And this is where you start to see things like oxetic materials, which have these really unusual behaviors that you actually don't see in nature. And that becomes um, one of the goals, I would say, of metamaterials is to to chart new territory in material property space. So you're you're looking to kind of expand the space of materials by engineering these things. But oxetic materials, of course, have this negative Poisson's ratio, so they get they get kind of bigger as you compress them, which is very counterintuitive. Does it require a pattern within the material? To, to be considered a metamaterial? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I mean, the mathematician in me was going to say, well, what do you mean by a pattern? By pattern, but, right. <laughs> um, but so, no, I think I think I know what you mean. So does it need to be repetitive or, right. let's like say, Right, like a structure periodic? that is somehow, yeah. Right, repetitive. and the answer to that is no. So there have actually been some really interesting and powerful examples 
of stochastic metamaterials. So that just means kind of random mm -hmm. metamaterials, mm -hmm. sort of a controlled randomness, let's say. And um, these turn out to be very powerful because with a periodic metamaterial, you can often get these concentrations of stress at the kind of uh, symmetric areas, whereas with a stochastically generated metamaterial, you end up kind of distributing the stress throughout the material and they can end up being a lot more performant. One of the interesting things, like I tend to think of it as like, like we have lots of foaming materials, right? Um, and I just think of the, like the ability to have controlled foam, right? To, to have an idea of like being able to design a, a particular property or design a particular like outcome, design a particular material property, which isn't possible by something of foam that just like kind of randomly unfolds itself. Exactly. And foams, I mean, that's a, it's, that's a great example, actually, because foams are very, uh, very powerful and, um, or they're at least really, uh, they have tons of applications and it's, it's hard to do better than foam in a lot of case mm -hmm. and foam, foams are random. So yeah. And the, and the, and the example, I think the example that everyone knows, at least in our industry is this NFL helmet challenge thing where we're getting a lot of structure, or this is the one I, I often repeat, we're getting a lot of structure, which can help against really sharp, fast impacts and also really slow, heavy impacts where we're getting a behavior that you couldn't get with a foam or you couldn't get with just a bunch of cells that are uh, just uniformly constructed according to, to without having control. And, and are you seeing those kind of applications as well? Or Yeah, absolutely. I think impact, uh, impact mitigation is certainly a huge application area for metamaterials. And you're right that uh, it, they can be kind of tuned to respond to different types of, of impacts. And so you see these metamaterials designed for like blast impacts of kind of more of a military nature. And then you see things that have been specifically designed or engineered to respond to um, uh, prevent concussions. And I think, you know, concussion science has come a long way as well. We're, we're understanding more and more what actually happens during a concussion and uh these metamaterials can certainly play a role in in helping to mitigate some of those effects i don't know I, well, what went right with you with math because at one point it went wrong with me in math i started <laughs> hating it <laughs> i was like i didn't yeah. understand and, and at one point that didn't that didn't happen with you it, just, it was just always fascinating or no, no. Actually, I, I'd love to explain that. So I actually did not want to be a mathematician. I I thought I wanted to be an artist for a really long time. And uh, when I was, um, like, I was a very kind of reluctant student. And when I was in high school, I was, uh, you know, I had to complete a, a science fair project, actually. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to do something mathematical because I don't mind math. And, um, and I'm going to choose something geometric so that I can create some artwork, basically. And so I chose this topic of Penrose tilings, which are actually related to to you know what I what I do now um, in the sense that they're they're kind of like um, they're a non periodic structure in fact, but they they are a repetitive structure let's say. And um, it's fair to say that this project just kind of blew my mind that it was uh, it brought in so many different areas of mathematics, and when mathematics goes right, it is kind of like. A chorus of angels, you know what I mean. The 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 beauty um, comes through, and so for me, as someone who was really interested in art and creating these visual things, but also interested kind of intrinsically in aesthetics, um, that experience was really really amazing. So there's this uh, this kind of visual, um, this compelling visual content on the one hand, and then this more this deeper aesthetic experience of mathematics on the other. Um, 
and then I mean, once once you kind of get started, then it's it's almost addictive because math is just everywhere and uh, it applies to so many things. So yeah, that one thing led to another, and um, I ended up with a PhD in math. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's got to be a little bit more complicated than that. Because I, I was going to say people, one one plus uh, one equals two. You're, you're glossing over that. You know, same thing. <laughs> because like, yeah. I know a lot of people that have success with these volcanoes, and I know very few volcanologists. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a big difference between doing this as like a career. I mean, so the next step is like majoring in it. I mean, so there's something in between that, right? That you decide to like major in, right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, for me, yeah, maybe this is just about my personality, but I, I sort of said to myself, you know, math is pretty hard and I'm just going to see if I can take this next step and get an undergraduate degree in math. And by the way, I also studied uh, art in my undergrad, so I was trying to keep my doors open. And uh, so I just said, let's just see if I can do this. But it kind of just one thing led to another. So math is really about abstraction. And actually one of the misconceptions about math is that, well, it does use a lot of numbers, but that you have to be good with numbers to do math. And so I'm actually not an amazing person with numbers. And you know, back in the olden days when we used to go to restaurants and split the bill and and the, the, the bill would arrive and you'd have to divide it, you know, my friends would pass me the bill and that was, that was never the right move. <laughs> um, so that's not really my thing. So my thing is more abstraction and that's really what you need to be good at and, or at least prepared to do in order to, uh, to kind of pursue mathematics further. Um, so that's kind of how I, yeah, how I continued in math. Was, was there a particular higher level math that struck you, like differential equations or something? Or matrices or, or geometry yeah. or a proof? <laughs> I, yeah, no, writing a proof, for example. I'm just curious <laughs> if that, I, I know that you, you, you mentioned the Penrose um, yeah. example and that, how that kind of like blew your mind on some level, but I'm just curious if there was one branch of, of mathematics that you found particularly stimulating that resulted in you really going harder to get a master's, get a PhD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. So the Penrose Tilings thing, um, I did actually come back to that at an advanced level. So it was, it was something that, you know, you kind of have to put a lot of these like interesting parts of math aside for a while, um, while you kind of cover the basics. And then I did actually return to that study in in my graduate work. But as an undergraduate, I think the I can remember one experience in a set theory class where we learned about basically different kinds of infinity. And I remember this basically blew my mind. Like, uh, I thought there was really only one infinity, but no, right. there's, there's different orders of infinity. So I remember that being pretty amazing. And then, but then afterwards, I mean, okay, so then you, you end up doing a PhD, I think in the, with these same triangles, right? That's right. Or, oh, well, actually, my PhD was in something called rigidity theory, um, okay. which sounds like it would be really applied. And it, 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 isn't, it isn't, though. <laughs> um, it's not, it, does, no. <laughs> it does take inspiration from an applied question. So it's kind of like if you need to build a scaffold on a, you know, to um, do construction on a building, or you're building something out of like popsicle sticks or whatever, mm -hmm. will it be rigid? Or will it will it fall over? That's the kind of fundamental question. But like mathematics is kind of weird in the sense that you take these these applied questions and then you just go really abstract. So um, I was, you know, my PhD thesis was all about proving theorems about n-dimensional frameworks, you know, n-dimensional periodic frameworks. Are they rigid or are they flexible and under what conditions? 
Um, so it doesn't actually re- lead to a, a super uh, applied um, application. Okay, okay. And then, so the sensible person would then join a hedge fund, right? And make lots of money. So, <laughs> and not do any of this tricky math stuff and just code stuff for a living, right? That, that's, but you decided to do more math. Right. <laughs> I decided to do more math. Yeah, 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 that's true. So I did, um, you know, do some postdocs and things like that. And then I met um, the person who's now my my business partner, Daniel Hamilton, who, as I mentioned, had started this consultancy doing, you know, working in the architecture industry primarily, but really working at the intersection of mathematics and design. And given my background, I was like, I need to do that too. So yeah, so I, I joined him and we've been working together ever since. And it's, it's super awesome. So what I can say about moving to that setting is that in the academic world, if you're doing a PhD, you're, focus, you, you, you're forced to focus very deeply on one thing, on one problem. And you go to these conferences and it's all people who talk about exactly the same things that you think about and you go really deep. And then you go into industry and people have problems that just come up and they might involve answers and tools from huge range of different areas of math. And so I I love this. I love being able to work on different problems in a whole bunch of different areas. And so that was just a really great fit for me, as well as this, you know, this need for dealing with the the math on the one hand and solving really um, you know, scientific and mathematical problems. But then often there's this aesthetic component where, you know, working with architects, they they need things to look a certain way. Or even in the 3D printing applications, we've had a lot of aesthetic parameters that are layered on and that interface is really interesting. Okay. Okay. And how did you guys end up with like with the metafold getting involved with this metafold thing or this well, it was a project just ostensibly first, right? How did you end up getting involved with 3D printing? We initially were not working in the 3D printing area until we got a contract. Um, it's actually, it's still ongoing. We've been working on this for maybe five or six years now with a large company who is doing a industrial, um, industrial metamaterial project. And that was very interesting. It was very illuminating to see how challenging it was, how challenging it is to work with metamaterials. So they are trying to produce like a consumer product using lattices and 3D printed lattices. And the, the way they do this, their engineering process is just not at all streamlined. So we came in to, to help them to explore the space of possible lattices and um, come up with tools to generate, to manipulate, to simulate all the things you might want to do with lattices. But that project really illuminated the fact that there was nothing existing on the market that was going to, to solve this problem. And uh, so the problem is, okay, we know the problem is from a very practical example. Like, okay, so first off, we can't predict the behavior of these things. It's very difficult to create them. Uh, it's very difficult to create them with a goal in mind, right? Uh, and also they crash your browser, right? Essentially, or your browser or your, <laughs> your, or your, your, or your a CAD <laughs> your program CAD or, yeah. or you have like, you know, 50 MB files or 500 MB files yes. and, and, and then you have to email them to people. It's, it's horrible, right? So how did you guys solve that, like that really practical problem? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we solved that problem um, using an implicit definition of these things. Um, so I know there are a number of other uh, software companies doing this at this point in time, which is great. Um, and so, yes, we we take the the approach of representing these things using 
equations, not using surface representations. So it, you actually, you pointed out in the introduction that it is sort of funny that our original company was called Mesh. And then no. in fact, one of the names <laughs> we, we explored <laughs> for, for Metafold was anti-Mesh or not Mesh or something like this, no. because no. we want to do away with the Mesh. And it's, it's not a sensible representation for any kind of complexity, actually, but especially for, for lattices and, and, uh, and metamaterials. You didn't. You saw the STL thing, and you didn't immediately, as a mathematician, fall in love with it, right? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like triangles. <laughs> well, I mean, thought you like triangles, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, we 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 spend so much time with triangle meshes. To be honest, I mean, this is the uh, this is kind of the vocabulary or the language of geometry processing, which is where we mm-hmm. we live in our consulting world, and you, you kind of can't avoid it. Um, it's an incredibly useful format it just doesn't work for for lattices or or um you know high complexity geometries the stochastic geometries um max you were asking about are are particularly um you know bad for this like if you want to you, you can't even right. use the repetition to get any kind of optimality every every part of it is different so you have to just represent the whole surface with this mesh and it's it's horrible and then yeah it's like gift wrapping your thing right and then we all know if you gift wrap stuff you <laughs> It doesn't always it well, never you also fits the, precisely, right? <laughs> or at least for me, I'm, I'm very good at. You also have the it, internal uh, surface problem, right? With traditional meshes, where if you try to slice something, it gets really complicated internally. If you want to have a crazy yeah. internal structure, yeah. Or in fact, for that matter, how do you even tell whether something is inside or outside? I mean, to be honest, this is one of mm-hmm. the fundamental problems of computational geometry. Um, this is an incredibly hard problem to solve. How do you just? How do you tell if if a point is inside or outside a shape. Yeah, um, but we have uh, we have that a lot. The non-manifold issue, which is like we get yeah. that, that that's probably going to be mean different things to you, but but for us that's called like a non-manifold when we have flipped triangles or we don't know yeah. we literally where the CAD program does not understand or the printer or the slicing program does not understand what the inside and the outside of the, of the part is. Yeah, uh, right. So that's one one challenge, absolutely. Um, but even if you have a manifold shape. Just telling, just just figuring out on a computer what shape, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, what points are inside and outside. This is non-trivial, and uh, mm-hmm. there's there's error. There's quite a bit of error um, that relate to how you know how accurate you can actually be on a computer. Mm-hmm. And how? So, what's your better way of describing these these these, these uh, geometries then? Yeah. So the better way is through implicit modeling. So really, we do represent everything as um, as an equation, and then you can build up high complexity things using this very lightweight um, representation. And and so in particular for periodic structures, I mean, we just have a very very lightweight representation of the surface. Sorry, of the um, the unit cell, that kind of fundamental building block. And then we can we can repeat that. But so yeah, I mean, we're using a lot of the tools from from computer graphics and um, you know shader programming and things like this that help us represent the geometry in a really um, really lightweight way. Yeah, so it's kind of like this is also basically the basis for end topology. Other people have a similar solutions for for, for this. Essentially, instead of like trying to wrap everything by triangles with little triangles you're saying like if one lego we have a hundred lego blocks and then if this is one lego block essentially like this right or they're a bit too simple <laughs> um i'm not sure what you mean by the lego blocks like you're just He's saying trying to use the lego you, blocks to build the object yeah exactly. <laughs> Something like yeah that, yes it is although you can all that is true so if you have um if you have a periodic structure you can absolutely represent it that way it's also mm-hmm. true though if you have a 
a, a non-periodic structure, like one of these stochastic mm-hmm. or randomly generated structures, typically they come with a set of design parameters mm-hmm. and um, you can just evaluate the function that that represents them at the, you know, at the point of interest. So for 3D printing, this is at the the slice plane. So you just create the slices by evaluating the function on that slice. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then this also means, but you guys also literally have a slicing a solution, right? So you can actually, so I can come to you with a, with a, with a kind of a requirement and you can give me a file essentially, or also a way to generate multiple ways of these files, right? Essentially a formula, right? Or uh, right. also just a, a sliced geometry that I could feed into a printer, right? Yeah, that's right. So our our software is a little unusual because it's kind of, um, you configure your part for printing at the same time that you slice it. So it's kind of like um, the slicing is always happening and it's just it starts out sliced. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so this this means that you never have to uh, you never have to kind of explicitly slice a triangle mesh. Okay, but is, okay. is your software standalone for the creation of the objects or is it an add-on to like other other softwares? And sometimes yeah. these operate independently. Sometimes they're directly linked to some other piece of software. Right. So our software is is standalone. However, we would expect it's not a it's not a full CAD solution or, um, you know, we would expect that people would create a part in their favorite, you know, CAD software program and then bring that in as a design space to our our software, um, at which point they can apply metamaterials and um, configure it for printing and that, you know, the slicing would happen as, as part of that. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And and how do you? Because I can literally. I mean, on your website, I, I can kind of sign up for this, right? Kind of like a, a trial basis, like or, or do, you seem to also work for project basis. What's the? How, how do people work with you? If, if I have like, if I want to make like a, a better helmet or something, how would people work with you? Yeah. So um, so we are very much so Metafold is very much in a, a startup place, and so we have just released our software in beta and we just mm-hmm. actually wrapped up that uh that beta trial and so now it's it's not available anymore we're just taking the time to absorb the feedback from that beta and to kind of do some retooling but at that point it will become it will become available commercially the other part i want to mention is that um something you mentioned in the intro which is that we're we are building 3d printers we are not actually building oh, 3D printers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Correction. So, <laughs> yes, but this was something we started out doing. So this, um, oh, yeah. maybe just to kind of like fill in some gaps. Um, so Daniel and I at Mesh, one of our one of our employees there, Tom, came with um, a whole bunch of knowledge about 3D printing. He's been building his own 3D printers for a decade, and we kind of, you know, it was sort of an unusual collection of people thinking about this thing. So you know. I'm a mathematician. Daniel's more of a mm-hmm. uh, software person. Tom is a 3D printing and person and an architect. And so we put all these things together, and we ended up building a printer, prototyping a printer that um, has a very unusual workflow. So it uh, basically integrates directly with our hardware to be a full volumetric system. So you can mm-hmm. just create something directly in the software. You hit print, and it will immediately start streaming the geometry to the printer and the printer starts literally right away. So there's, there's none of like, there's no slicing step basically. So in other words, it's, it's full volumetric data being Mm -hmm. streamed to the printer. That's, that's kind of the, the core of our technology. Um, And we, you know, we submitted a patent on that stuff and we launched as 
as Metafold thinking that we would commercialize these these printers in this system. But, you know, through many conversations and just, you know, reflection, um, we realized that there's so much amazing hardware out there that um, the real the real contribution we had to make was more on the software side and on the interface between the mm-hmm. software and the hardware. And so at this point mm-hmm. in time, we are working with a few hardware manufacturers to integrate our volumetric workflow directly with their their printers. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, we also have this effectively a design for additive manufacturing software that people mm-hmm. can just eventually use. It's, as I said, it's not commercially available right now, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're doing pilot projects and so on. And so, so essentially, at one point, I'll be able to buy this or do something with it, let's say. And then, and then at one point, I'll go to, I don't know, whatever some, it's, SL, it's SLA and DLP and, or MSLA, right? Or those are the ones you're focusing on, right? Yeah. I mean, the printer we built was DLP. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was DLP actually with a really unusual structure. So it had a moving, moving projector, which meant that we could mm-hmm. just print these very massive things, but with kind of unlimited mm-hmm. complexity. So we were printing wow. these, okay. um, you know, these lattice blocks with, you know, hundreds of thousands of unit cells. Um, I don't know, approximately five inches by 15 inches, I think. Wow. Okay. Most, most in DLP XMI. and SLA printers struggle to print anything larger than an orange, right? I mean, that's, that's exactly that right. right. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. So we were printing these very large, very complex things. But eventually, you know, we hope to integrate with a range of hardware, not just DLP hardware, although that is kind of the best first use case because our software kind of naturally outputs these, um, you know, pixels. It naturally outputs black and white pixels. Ah, okay. So it's easier for you to, oh, now I understand why. You, I never understood why you guys only did SLA but, or VAT polymerization. But that, that, of course, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Then it's much easier to, to output it. Then, well, if you want to test something, why not, right? And exactly. also it's really, it's really accurate, right? So there's like a lot of detail and stuff. You could do a lot of very complicated things. That's right. Are you, guys, are you guys also thinking about like powder bed fusion and, and material extrusion, that kind of thing, or not really? Yeah, absolutely. But that has to do with the way our, um, you know, we would love to figure out the full volumetric uh, kind of streaming to those methodologies. It's it, So DLP is so easy, right, to get started mm-hmm. with. And that's why we mm-hmm. we did that. It's much harder to kind of figure out how we how we set up the geometry for these other other methodologies mm-hmm. and um it, it turns out mm-hmm. that people don't really want to share that information about how those things are are done so it's a bit harder Crazy. To, they probably to also that. don't know right a lot of these guys don't know one of the things like for example that really interests me like i'm uh very enthusiastic about sports equipment uh ortho uh, orthotics orthopedics that kind of thing and I'm actually a lot of skeptic because we can't really predict their behavior. But just generally, I think what, what what is one of the most exciting things for me is a variable density insole, right? Which uh, this guy called Steve Wood did a little bunch of work with a bunch of years ago. He's called Gyrobolt. You might know him under that. But uh, so the idea is that I would get, based on my walk, I would get a, a unique kind of insole, right? That's uniquely kind of uh, configured where the cells are uniquely configured to match my tread at a certain location, a certain voxel. You can exa- at every voxel kind of design what properties you need there. And to me, that's really exciting because you can't do that with any other manufacturing technology. And then, you know, imagine doing that for like a, a golf club or, or, or a helmet or whatever, you know, and I think that's really exciting specifically with FDM because we can also enclose these chambers with air in FDM, right? And that's, I think, 
people don't realize this, if you have a flexible TPU kind of thing, you can just make one bigger and smaller. You have lots of different air cavities everywhere. That's really exciting to me. Yeah. But- and that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, one of our goals too at Metafold is to, to make scan data actionable in a way. So mm-hmm. working directly with, um, with scan data to get that into the platform more easily. And that, that has, that has been, you know, a challenge for, for computational geometry. And I think, uh, you know, we've made some good headway on that front. Okay. I would, Joris, I would like to address your lattice skepticism a little, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, please, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, I do get it. And this is actually something that we have experienced really directly that people, people are like, yeah, I want to, I want to do lattices. And so the first question is, you know, why, what, what are you actually trying to achieve with with lattices and are they even the right tool? But so one of the things that we are really focused on is this idea of length scale separation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this means is that we're interested in using lattices at a scale where they behave like materials, not like structures. And this has been one of the frustrations about working with lattices so far is that they're, they've basically been structures. So what I mean is like you have a few lattice unit cells and then they're just a huge headache to simulate. Like you have to mesh mm-hmm. them and then you have to simulate them and they take forever and it's super annoying and you can't yeah. really predict them anyway. Whereas, yeah. you know, our interest is on the, these high length scale separation structures. So really looking at, at lattices as materials and um, this is getting back to the, the metamaterials concept. So um, and w- once we can do that, then we, mm-hmm. we can actually predict with more mm-hmm. confidence what the behavior will be like because you can rely more strongly on homogeneous uh, material properties. I love that idea, but there's a lot of people that are pretending right now they know what lattices are actually going to do. And what a friend of mine always says is that I'm not going to quote him because there's, well, there's obvious commercial interests that are very pro-lattice <laughs> and we're kind of like this underground group of people that are like anti-lattice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but if you put it under like load-bearing kind of structures or things like shear stress and stuff, a friend of mine, you say it, it like behaves like spaghetti. You just can't model, you know, we, we can model the strands of the spaghetti, right? We understand, right? But then we put it together and put a load on it and just behaves like spaghetti. We have no idea what's going on, you know? So well, I, I mean, in that case, you may not have found the right lattice. I mean, not, and lattice well, is not going to solve every problem, but... Um, and I think yeah. another part of our kind of response to this is um, is just like print more. We're trying to make it super easy to print lattices. So mm-hmm. just print more lattices and test them. I mean, that's that's a little bit unsatisfying in some ways because you know everyone loves to simulate everything, but lattices are hard to simulate. So mm-hmm. so just you know like print print some more of them. Um, mm-hmm. Try it and, out. and also like the the space of lattices is enormous. I mean, it's it's actually mm-hmm. infinite, and so the literature and the explorations to date have really focused on only a handful of lattices. And that's another mm-hmm. thing we're really focused on is, is trying to expand the space of, of lattices mm-hmm. for exploration and try to make it easier as well to get to the lattice that you need for your particular, mm-hmm. for your particular problem. Um, and so mm-hmm. here we're, we're thinking about not so much um, designing a lattice, but solving some engineering challenge with lattice. And sometimes this looks like, you know, we have a few um, machine learning models where you can actually dial in your uh, desired stress response, and then it will suggest geometries for for you that will achieve that. But maybe, you know, maybe you're not someone who has the end target in mind, and maybe you need something that's like more of a, a guided natural language, you know, questionnaire that will help suggest a lattice for your particular application. Mm-hmm. Do you envision this having impacts on the material side in the sense of if I can tune or program a lattice appropriately, 
for a material, I can now get these great new properties out of materials that I couldn't before. Therefore, I could, and I'm just using this as an example, I could use paper and get strength of, of steel under the right kind of structural circumstances. And therefore, I now have a material that is more easily biodegradable, but also can simulate or do something of similar strength to a material that it shouldn't be able to without the lattice. Yeah, that makes sense. E- yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think the key is to expand what we can do with additive using the materials that are available. So like the the printer spits out a certain material and then metamaterials will expand that portfolio so that you can get different behaviors. You you can't like you can't you can't go stronger, right? Like you can't right. use a lattice to get something stronger, but um you can get really amazing uh properties using using lattices and you can expand kind of the material portfolio available. I think that's interesting. The, the, remember a long time ago, we have this conversation with John Barnes about like every part could be a material. You could make a unique uh, material for every single part, you know, and then every single part could, could have exactly the material it needs, but we don't really have the tools to do that or nobody's really thinking that way. So I think it's very powerful what you guys are doing or potentially doing. So, yeah, as George is saying, if you can use the same material throughout a structure, but just use this meta material in a sense by using a different printing method, all of a sudden, you can achieve that same thing without having to use multiple materials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, I think I think sort of um, a lot of people are kind of over lightweighting for some reason. People are like done with lightweighting, but it's incredibly important. Um, and uh, you know, I think one of our, I guess, another part of our our vision is in really kind of realizing additive manufacturing as this uh, really kind of transformative manufacturing methodology that can contribute to a reduction in, in global energy use. And, and lightweighting is a critical part of this. Making end-use parts that are lighter is a huge objective that we should all be thinking about. Um, and, and we hope to you know, just expand the, the, the range of possibilities there. I think that's interesting. Like also laudable goal, right? Um, Domin has a similar kind of big kind of climate kind of related uh, challenge. But I think also like the reason for that is like with satellites, it's a beautiful business case, right? Because uh, it's like, you know, $10,000 a kilo or 20, depending on who launches your thing. But for a lot of other things, you don't really, you know, you don't really get noticed that it would cost you money to make something heavier or lighter. It depends on what the, uh, the application is. But for a lot of people, it doesn't really, it's not really that important, you know, even though it maybe should be. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, aerospace is the the key application there. Anytime you're you're moving something, it takes energy to move stuff, and therefore, the lighter you make it, the, the less expensive it is to move it. Yeah, some of the other applications that we're really excited about, though, in a similar vein, are areas where um, where surface area becomes really important, and so this is things like carbon capture devices or filtration, or even, I mean, there's a lot that's been made about heat exchange, but this is all related to surface area and how much surface area you have directly impacts um, how much carbon you can capture from the environment or how much water you can filter. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited by heat exchange generally, like everybody else, I think, but also meshes. I think you're, or meshes in the sense that uh, filtration meshes mm-hmm. or filtering yeah. uh, mesh bodies of some kind. I think there's one startup that is using this, you know, for, for desalination, but there's like a, a ton of applications where you know you, we can do better than just some mesh that's like an evenly spaced mesh where we can really make a, a mesh that's, that's really very well you know suited to 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 that application or particularly suited to that application yes exactly you can tune you can tune these things directly for for the application 
Yeah, and I think that's really powerful to see that in you know, yeah, oxygen exchange, heat exchange, uh, any kind of filtration or any kind of thing like that. Yeah, exactly. The carbon capture example is interesting too, and I don't know if you will have seen this. There was this great paper out of Lawrence Livermore last year where they were creating these open cell. They call them cellular fluidics. It's almost like a three dimensional microfluidics device, and so they were able to create these open cell microstructures and control fluid flow through these open cell microstructures. It was really remarkable work, but one of their applications was in carbon capture. So this open cell microstructure was able to um, basically house the sorbent or the absorbent material that could then capture greenhouse gases. But the point is that the, the geometry made it so that there was just a tremendous amount of uh, surface area of interface between that absorbent material and the air. So the, that that kind of application is also really exciting to us. Yeah, I can imagine, especially since you guys have the ability to maybe even make it and stuff like that as well. <laughs> yes, and scale it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That could be really exciting. But what do you hope to do with the company just generally? I mean, what's uh, what's uh, what, do you, what do you hope to do? I've already stated that you know we're excited about some of these application areas and kind of realizing the promise of additive as this transformative manufacturing methodology. I think one of the really exciting things about making a tool like this is that we don't exactly know what people are going to mm-hmm. to make with it. Um, and um, so, you know, we're really excited about helping engineers design remarkable uh, innovations. And if you look at the academic literature, there's all this incredible research being done on, on lattices and metamaterials. Um, but they're done on these very small studies. And so we're really excited about kind of helping to shepherd some of these innovations into the industrial world uh, by being able to to handle the amount of complexity needed to scale them up. So yeah, we're really excited about about those things. Okay, sounds like a very laudable goal. Uh, a very great thing. Okay, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Yeah, it was it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, so thanks for this, and, and uh, thank you as well, Max. Oh, always a fascinating time. Thank you for hosting, Joris. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and uh, this is another episode of The 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to The 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore